Good afternoon, good morning, and a very warm welcome to this event on gender responsive humanitarian action. I'm Sorsia O'Callaghan, I'm the director of the Humanitarian Policy Group at ODI, and I'm here with a fantastic uh, group of panelists to discuss this today. The event is co-hosted by the Government of Ireland, the Government of Canada, and the Humanitarian Policy Group as part of the 66th session of the Commission on the Status of Women. And today we're discussing the impact of humanitarian crises on gender norms um, and how humanitarian actors should respond to changing roles and norms in crisis settings. So first, an introduction to our panel. A very warm welcome first to, to Marta Arroyo, who is the, uh, the executive director of Pro Familia in Colombia, which is Colombia's largest NGO providing, uh, protecting and advocating for sexual and reproductive health uh, rights and services. I'm also delighted to be joined by April Pham. April is a feminist with almost 30 years of experience in women's rights, and she's currently the senior gender advisor and head of the gender unit for UN OCHA, as well as the co-chair of the ISC Gender Reference Group. Also on our panel today is Sarah Costa, who is the Executive Director of the Women's Refugee Commission. And finally, Megan Daigle, Daigle who is a Senior Research Fellow with HPG and who spearheads HPG's research on gender and sexuality in humanitarian contexts. Before we, we, we hear from Megan, I first want to hand over uh, to Fiona Broderick. Uh, Fiona, we're really grateful for you to, for joining us today and for stepping in at the last minute um, to take over these opening remarks. Uh, Fiona is the Deputy Director for US Relations at Ireland's Department of Foreign Affairs and a specialist on women, peace and security and human rights. So over to you first, Fiona. Thank you very much, Sorsha, and, and thanks to the whole Humanitarian Policy Group team for organising this event at CSW. Uh, you're a great partner of Ireland, and I'm really looking forward to hearing more about the research you've undertaken on gender roles in displacement. It's fascinating um, and very important uh, piece of research, and also to hear from the panellists. Um, I think we're in for, for an interesting discussion this morning. We're also very pleased to co-sponsor this event with, with our Canadian colleagues who share our commitment to political leadership in advancing gender equality and the empowerment of women and girls. Um, I'm based here in the Irish Mission to the UN in New York, and uh, my colleague Ambassador Flynn had intended to be here to join the discussion today. However, some of you might have heard we've been living a, a bit of a nightmare this past week as our Deputy Permanent Representative, Ambassador Jim Kelly, tragically passed away last Thursday. Uh, it's been an awful shock to us and Ambassador Flynn needs to be there um, with, with our colleagues and his family at this, this immensely difficult time. But he's asked me to step in this morning for this important event uh, and so I'm very grateful for your understanding on that. I'm leading the work here in the Irish Mission in relation to CSW and I think perhaps one of the most instrumental things that the Commission has achieved over the past 75 years is to highlight the importance of mainstreaming gender. Gender equality cannot simply be an added extra to policymaking, it must be central. This is something that we are deeply committed to in Ireland. Gender equality defines our work across the board uh, and informs the strategic choices that we make. Indeed, Ireland's current international development policy, A Better World, 
commits us to an overarching focus on women and girls in all our partnerships and interventions. And so our work here in, the, in New York reflects that as well. Some of you will remember that our permanent representative ambassador, Jogging Bernason, chaired the last in-person CSW in 2019 and the year before in 2018. And that was the first time that an Irish person had taken on this global role. Over the past year and a half, we've been using our non-permanent seat at the Security Council to emphasize the essential role that women play in the prevention and resolution of conflicts, humanitarian responses, and post-conflict resolution and peace building. We're currently co-chairs of the informal expert group on women, peace and security, which gets together to consider country files that are on the agenda of the Security Council. So for example, we convened the group in February to consider the situation of women and girls in Afghanistan ahead of the UNAMA mandate re renewal last week that went through. It was an opportunity for the WPS experts from each Security Council mission from Russia through to Norway to hear directly from UN representatives on the ground. In that case, it was a special representative uh, in Kabul, Deborah Lyons, who briefed us about the situation for women and girls and gave recommendations to us as to what she and her team would like to see in the mandate. And then that informs us as we go into the negotiations. So at every opportunity on the council, we've, we've been working to try and emphasize the needs of women and girls. And we think the best way to do this is hearing directly from them. Uh, so what, when we held the presidency in September, we brought a record number of women civil society briefers to the Security Council. This was ahead of peacekeeping mandate renewals and other processes on these files. And in terms of WPS, Ireland is also a signatory and board member of the WPS Humanitarian Action Compact that emerged from the Generation Equality Forum. I'm sure you're familiar with it. It is a global initiative to accelerate the implementation of the WPS agenda and further strengthen gender equality and women's rights. But this, I know this conversation isn't as focused on WPS, it's, it's more about our humanitarian policy. So um, I wanted to focus on, uh, on that here today. Ireland provides flexible and, and core funding for UN agencies, the International Red Cross and NGOs. And over time, we've increased funding to local and national women's organizations working on gender rights and inclusion. COVID-19 showed us that local organizations and community groups kept activities going when international agencies could not access those who needed support. I'm sure that's that your people on this call are familiar with that um, across their work. It was the local organizations that maintained services and responses to the increase in gender-based violence. That has been well documented by our partners across the humanitarian spectrum. And so we've learned that as donors, we should step up and commit to developing local capacity and support local organizations directly, not just through intermediary tools. So I'd be interested to hear, I don't know if you're going to go into this, um, Megan, in, in your presentation, if COVID has had an impact on gender norms in displacement. We've also ensured that the protection of women and girls in emergencies is part of the appraisal criteria for all who receive Irish aid humanitarian funding, integrating it into the humanitarian program cycle and using gender markers, guidance and other tools to, in conjunction with Irish aid standards. I know this discussion will focus on displacement. Uh, and so I just want to say a word about the tremendous hum human suffering we're witnessing on the fringe of Europe in Ukraine. I think I heard today that it's at 3.5 million people now who have left. Uh, the majority of them, something like 90% are women and children. As I speak, Ireland's commitment to protection and safety of vulnerable 
this place people is paramount uh, as we agree humanitarian aid packages with our implementing partners. And I, I think it's, I mean, I think it's paramount to say as well that the, that the high priority we must give is to ensuring the, their protection from sexual exploitation, abuse and harassment. That must be at the core of all our humanitarian work. Those who violate this trust should be held to account and will not be tolerated. Finally, uh, just a word about the CSW negotiations at the moment. Um, they're being the, the, the focus of CSW this year, as, you, as I'm sure you are, you're all aware, is climate change um, and, and gender equality in the context of climate change. And we're going into the second round today on, on the negotiations of the agreed conclusions. And we're hoping that on Friday we'll have consensual uh, agreed conclusions for CFW. These conclusions focus on gender equality uh, in the context of climate change, like I said. And we know that globally women and girls remain hardest hit by the effects of extreme poverty, climate change and conflict. Our humanitarian responses and our responses across the board must be based on evidence. And that's why we're so supportive of the work here today uh, and the work that HPG do. I'm really looking forward to hearing more about the gender roles, how, gen how gender roles change in displacement and how that can inform our policy making. Uh, and I'm also really looking forward to hearing from the four panelists so thank you very much for this kind invitation and I'll, I'll hand it back to you, Sorsha. Thanks very much, Fiona. And I think you've you've touched on some some really important points there. But before I reflect on those, just just to emphasize that our hearts really go out to you and to, to all other colleagues in, in, in the mission. Um, and of course, for all the family and friends of um, the ambassador. Um, um, so thanks again for, for coming with us um, and spending the time uh, with this event. Um, you've touched on a lot of different issues there. Um, I think one of them uh, which really uh, strikes home because it's a, a conversation, I think, and an issue that you'll hear a lot about during this panel is the role of um, place-based organizations um, and women's organizations. Um, so it's certainly a theme I think we'll hear a lot about over the course of of this discussion, but it's it's fantastic also to hear about the leadership that Ireland um, um, has 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 played in in the Security Council and across all of your program programming on 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 um, mainstreaming gender and ensuring that women and girls are at the forefront of your your foreign policy. So so thanks a lot for that. Um, we're joined by a very large audience and before I, I turn to Megan for her presentation, I just wanted to remind you that the chat is open um, for you to, to provide feedback, thoughts, comments, um, to put in any uh, uh, links to any work you're doing or any examples that you think are, are relevant uh, to the panel and for, to the discussion today. If you have any questions for the panelists, please go into the questions and answers section um, and place them in there, but we also have moderators who will be drawing out some of the key themes from the chat into the questions and answer. Um, and there'll be time uh, for us to, to put them to the panelists. Um, but before that, um, we're going to turn um, to um, Megan, uh, who's going to present us uh, with the findings and the recommendations from HPG's three year research project on how gender roles change in displacement. Over to you, Megan. Thank you, Sorsha, and thank you, Fiona, for those introductory remarks. Um, it's interesting you should mention about COVID and the role of place-based actors, as we do have some forthcoming work on that. Um, but I will be touching on that here as well. 
Um, I'm delighted to be sharing our findings with you today from our project, Changing Gender Norms and Displacement. And I'm gonna start with just a little bit of background. So this project is built on our own observations as HPG and the team when we were doing research in various settings and we saw gender norms shifting sometimes dramatically, but not really being accounted for or even really seen by humanitarian actors. We saw blanket notions of risk being applied, especially related to gender-based violence during flight, but little engagement with, or even sometimes curiosity about what people and especially women were saying about it themselves or why it was happening. We also saw an array of commitments and guidelines emerging year on year, calling for gender responsive humanitarian action, but gender programs still remain the first to suffer in the face of limited resources or time sensitivity. And there's little emphasis on finding out what the roots of gendered harms are in each setting and how to intervene sensitively, supportively, and without causing further harm. Crisis-related gender harms are clearly far more complex and multifaceted than this framing suggests, stretching into every area of social, economic, and family life. There are harms to be mitigated, but there are also openings that could be supported. So we set out to ask ourselves and the humanitarian sector some of these thorny questions with the aim of informing more inclusive and effective humanitarian response. This project is part of HPG's integrated program of research on inclusion and exclusion in humanitarian action, which began in 2019 and will conclude mere days from now. Um, and it's been extended for a year during the COVID-19 pandemic, evidently. Um, we've published a literature review and we've conducted three case studies, one in Pakistan, one in Colombia with Pro Familia, Martes here today, and one in Uganda. Pakistan's available now and the other two are forthcoming. And we've also produced a final report drawing on this entire body of research, which we're launching today. It's called Gender, Power and Principles in Humanitarian Action. And the link to it should appear magically in the chat now. Um, today, we're gonna focus on the overarching findings from three years of research and distilled in this report, examining norm change in and after crisis and what the role of humanitarians should be in the face of these changes. So how do gendered norms, roles, and power relations change in displacement? Well, we can tell you that norms and roles certainly do change, um, often in tandem and sometimes dramatically, and that change is accelerated and shaped by crises of all kinds. But these changes are complex, they're not linear, they're incremental, and they're sometimes unpredictable. And this is true for people of all genders, women, men, and gender diverse people. Women certainly experience varied and layered gendered harms, but their vulnerability is, is not uniform, and nor are the harms limited to people who identify as women. The changes can be read as progressive and regressive, or a mix of the two. In our Pakistan research, for example, we saw how displacement can bring about openings and possibilities to transform power relations in ways that affected people themselves found to be very positive. Roles or practices may also shift due to practical realities while the underpinning norms and ideas remain more stubborn or even unchanged. When it happens, this kind of change is also highly context dependent. And this sits across not just household models or cultural ideas about family, but also material lived realities and structures like the welfare state and humanitarian response. And this is keeping in mind, of course, that gendered harms exist on a spectrum before, during, and after crisis, which might itself be understood as a kind of ongoing crisis. 
The role of culture is key, but culture is often understood to be a brake rather than an accelerator on gender justice. We found its influence to be uneven. Even restrictive cultural codes like machismo in Latin America or Pashtunwali in Pakistan can be interpreted differently depending on urban and rural locales, economic and political systems, cultural and religious contexts, and diverse types of crises. In Pakistan, for example, uh, rationales for gender justice that were based in readings of Islam or Pashtun culture achieved a lot more salience with affected people than those that originated elsewhere. Gender itself also needs to be understood as both relational and intersectional. So it's relational in the sense that we need to understand the full spectrum of gender identities and related norms and roles in order to address the concerns or vulnerabilities of any one group. And it's intersectional in that gender interacts with other axes of marginalization, such as racialization, sexuality, religion, class, disability, resulting in compounding, but also quite distinctive experiences of exclusion. So in Colombia, for example, we found that casting women as vulnerable, even displaced women, is not actually proven especially helpful. It's better to think about people in transit, and especially caminantes, people traveling on foot, but especially multiply marginalized people. So those with diverse sexual orientations and gender identities, impoverished women and girls, women with disabilities, and sex workers experience the most heightened risks. And finally, it's not really clear if changes are going to be permanent or sustainable in the longer term. But the moments when shifts are happening, either to roles or to norms, are important because those moments can be supported or resisted according to the self-defined priorities of affected people. People are always active in accepting, pursuing, or resisting the changes they see happening in their lives. So now to the second part of our core question. What are the implications of these changes? And what should the role of humanitarian actors be? Well, it's clear from our findings that humanitarians need to cultivate a greater awareness of the dynamic and particular settings in which they're intervening and avoid applying universal principles. There's four key points I wanna make here. The first is about rethinking what counts as evidence for action. Now, all of what I've said up until now, gender specialists in the room may well find unsurprising. And sometimes that's because it's long been accepted knowledge, um, even if it wasn't supported by concrete research and evidence. But sometimes the evidence does exist, but has been overlooked or not counted as humanitarian or even as gender knowledge. So that is to say, humanitarians should support the collection of evidence that is contextualized, qualitative, participatory, and dynamic to inform their actions but they should also apply a critical lens to what evidence already exists and consistently ask themselves, who is falling through the cracks here? How do our own perceptions and attitudes stack up against available data and evidence? Secondly, humanitarian actors themselves are not exempt from gender norms. So we found there's a persistent belief that humanitarians can choose whether they do gender or not whether it's part of their mandate or whether they consider it to be a genuine immediate need. But really, humanitarians are already intervening in gendered relations simply by being present. They're part of a changing social, cultural, and political landscape. 
This is evident in how humanitarians assess needs and vulnerabilities, how they shape their programs, and even in their own internal ways of working. So the work to redress it has to be internal and structural as well as ex external. And this is all part of coming to grips with the bases of the system, which are ultimately patriarchal, colonial, and heteronormative. Thirdly, a point about politics and principles. Gender justice can't be understood as a technical fix. It has to be political. Moving forward, therefore, means asking critical questions about how gender is understood and how principled humanitarian action is conducted. Namely, humanitarians participating in our research frequently understood the core principles of impartiality and neutrality in particular as inhibitors to engaging more meaningfully on gender. Impartiality as a reason not to tailor their responses to the needs of specific groups, including on gender, and neutrality is an explanation for shying away from topics perceived to be sensitive. In Colombia, this meant a wariness of facilitating or advocating for safe abortion care for displaced people who needed it. In Uganda, it meant aversion to extending protection or badly needed services to people with diverse sexual orientations. As we argue in the paper, this is misguided. And indeed, the purpose of humanitarian principles is weakened if they're understood as constraints on ensuring that people with the most urgent needs can access um, what they need. And then our final point is don't do more gender work, do better gender work. And here we make the possibly contentious claim that the role of humanitarianism is not to shift gender norms or to undertake gender transformative work. Rather, we suggest a two-pronged approach, one that first embeds gender analysis across all existing areas of humanitarian work, seeking to understand and respond to gendered harms, barriers, and opportunities wherever they appear and beyond what has been understood as gender concerns. And secondly, an approach that devolves decision-making and agenda-setting power, as well as funding, to local and national organizations focused on inclusion, primarily women's rights organizations, but also LGBTQIA organizations and organizations serving people with disabilities. Working with local and national organizations additionally promises to advance two long sought and ostensibly transformative humanitarian agendas that have also suffered from limited funding and commitment. They are of course, localization and participation under the grand bargain and collaboration across the so-called triple nexus of development, humanitarianism and peace building. So ultimately, we're calling for a paradigm shift, and it is admittedly a big ask, though one that serves all of us in the end. Gendered harms and exclusions are certainly exacerbated by crises, displacement among them, but they're not confined to those spaces alone, and thus the solutions to them can't be found in isolation either. As more and more actors adopt the banner of feminism in international affairs, feminist foreign policy, etc., this study also functions as a useful reflection on what that framing really means. A feminist ethos should take us closer to a humanitarian system that is not just accountable, but accessible and responsive to all affected people, regardless of their gender and in all their diversity. And that must mean a radical shift towards real accountability, commitment, and structural change. Thank you. Thanks, Megan. That's really powerful uh, and, and detailed and comprehensive uh, 
presentation. There's so much in it uh, and so many questions that I have, but I'm going to turn now to our panelists and first to, to Marta Royo, uh, the executive director of Pro Familia, to focus a bit more on Colombia. Um, Marta, I wanted to ask you how these findings on the impact of crises on gender roles and norms resonate with your experience of working with people who are displaced in Colombia. And also, if there's time, maybe you could reflect a little bit on how humanitarian organizations are responding to address these issues in Colombia. Over to you, Marta. Thank you, Sorsha, FPG, the government of Ireland and Canada, and of course, OCA for this invitation to share some of the findings of the study on gender and displacement of Venezuelans in Colombia and how we have seen it happening from our organizations. To better understand the findings of the Colombian study, I think it is important to consider the scale and type of humanitarian crisis countries and organizations like ours face. And just to give you an example, Prefamilia has been working on humanitarian responses for many years now, specifically because of the phenomenon of the internal displaced population due to conflict and war, which has impacted more than 6 million people over the past decades. And it's still happening in our country. And in the past four years, a little bit more, um, the refugees and migrant crisis from Venezuela, which amounts to around 1.8 million people trying to establish themselves in our country. So this means that the response has always had to be massive, but it's also a continuous learning experience about the changes on gender roles and norms. So yes, the topic is not new for us, but it's also a permanent challenge that we face. So in the, in the specific case of, of this research, which focuses on the migration of the Venezuelan population, some of the changes that we have seen happening are on one side, migrants are having more access to sexual reproductive services and information because the law in Colombia is much more progressive than the one in Venezuela, their country of origin. In Profamilia, we have worked to offer them more options for services and programs, including access to legal abortion services, providing information and care in the clinics or through the mobile brigades where the population is located. Both women and men have experienced an increased access to services that allows them at the end to take control over their bodies and their decisions. Also, Venezuelan of all genders, especially women and girls, feel they have more choice of contraceptive methods in our country. Our portfolio is much more broader. And also something that we have seen is that as women take more on both reproductive and productive roles, we are seeing a smaller family sizes. Um, in Profamilia, a lot of the migrants, especially women that come to the, to the clinics, they are asking for help in order to reduce the number of children that they have. One of the second findings that we have seen has had to do also with that, in a smaller scale, a redistribution of men and women in domestic and care work. So men, are participating a little bit more in the task than before migration happened, because women are also working outside of their homes as well right now. So, however, at the same time, 
the same things keeps happening. You know, there is always an additional burden on women, especially the single ones who must assume domestic care, but also productive work. Basically, all responsibilities still keep falling on them. Machismo is also significant, it's very significant still. So the shift in household chores and responsibilities at a large scale has yet a long way to go regarding the ideas of gender equality. And we are much aware in Profamilia of the situation that women here have within the care economy and the difficulties it generates. So, and we see in our clinics every day, women arriving with their children to the consultations and sometimes even the procedures because they do not have anyone to take care of them. What we have done in some of the clinics, but also in the mobile brigades is to create spaces and so that and establish some strategies. For example, Ferias of Pepe La Lagartija, which is a character that we have developing pro familia in order to deal with issues like sexual abuse in small children, so that their children are busy while their mothers go to their procedures or services. A third funding that we have identified in our program is that people with diverse sexual orientations gender identities or expressions and sex characteristics have a greater perception of well-being and security in relationship to their identities and the relations they can establish in Colombia than what they have in Venezuela. And this is, it is important to emphasize that this does not mean that people with all these diverse conditions, situations and life experiences do not experience homophobia or transphobia once in Colombia. But the focus on these forms of discrimination cannot be set aside. And even more so if we consider that at the same time, they might also be victims of xenophobia because of their conditions. But there is a sense of much more freedom to express diversity in our country. So what we have done in this case is to strengthen with the construction and application of an intersectionality approach more options for the population to access information and services, given the legal framework, of course. We are providing services with a more diverse vision, training our staff, including doctors and nurses on diversity, which allows them to reach more population groups. Regarding the second question that, that you, you asked me on how are humanitarian organizations responding to address these issues in Colombia, one of the strategies have been the minimal initial service package, the MIS. It's a super good example. Why? Because this package includes strategies and actions to reduce maternal morbidity and mortality, gender-based violence, and prioritizes attention to gender-based violence survivors and has recently integrated safe abortion services as well with an intersectional approach. A second, a second action has been um, we know that the humanitarian response is characterized in the first stage by saving the greatest number of lives. We know that for a fact. But for the later strategies and, and stages, the organizations are working together to identify the diversity of population groups and how to adapt humanitarian actions according to the different needs, identities, and circumstances of Venezuelans and Colombians. And last but not least, the challenges for organizations such as Profamilia and others working on humanitarian statements we know are huge. Even though we work with the intersectionality approach, there is still so much to learn and do. As the research shows, gender matters, and you have already mentioned it quite um, strongly along this meeting. We must always be aware of the burden women and girls have 
to bear in these situations. So all efforts and resources should be placed on adapting our responses to better tackle these issues that has so much to do with culture and machismo, especially in a region like Latin America. Thanks so much. Um, I'd love to, to delve further into that. I think there's so much learning from both the, the changes that you've seen um, in terms of gender roles and norms, um, you know, in um, with displacement, but also the response that, that Pro Familia has put in place. So, so thanks very much, Marta. Um, I'm going to turn now to you, April. Um, we heard from Megan that uh, the issue isn't about doing more gender work, it's about doing better gender work. And so I wanted to, to ask you about that. And given how we've seen that gender dynamics in humanitarian settings are evolving, how do you think humanitarian actors could better recognize and respond to these evolving dynamics? And in particular, how do you think they could drive change with place-based organizations? Um, thank you so much, and it's so, it's so delightful to be uh, joining this conversation because it is about how do we all collectively try to better understand gender dynamics and how they morph and evolve and change, whether that's progressively or regressively, um, and how these gender dynamics and gender roles can have implications for acute risk, but also for longer term vulnerability and empowerment, because I think this is the, the part that we often miss when we talk about gender work in humanitarian spaces. So I'd love to, to give some attention to that as well. However, right now, as we convene, there is nowhere in the world where gender equality exists. And in crisis settings, it's further exacerbated as we've heard, where men and women have different experiences and priorities, yet women's priorities are often unequally and unevenly addressed. Understanding these gender dimensions and the specific experiences of women and girls not only helps to meet their needs more effectively, but can also mitigate the further harm to groups that are already marginalized, including women and girls with disabilities and sexual minorities. And it also helps to reduce inequalities. And I think one of the points that Megan raised, and I really want to hone in on, is that at the very minimum, we will help to lessen the, um, the, the harm, um, at least not to exacerbate the inequalities if we're not taking an active role in um, advancing gender equality. But also I think we have a role to really capitalize on the opportunities for social change and really um, challenging norms, promoting new gender dynamics. And right now we have situations from Afghanistan to Ukraine that really challenge some of these dynamics. How do we, how do we bring this into um, the work that we do in humanitarian spaces? And before I speak to some of the things that we're doing, I wanna take a few moments to reflect on how the study of gender norms and changes in one place can impact gender norms uh, and practices in other places. Everything is connected. And so the collective responsibility for humanitarians to contribute to the gender equality agenda cannot be underscored. I think we really have to challenge this narrative that it's gender is not the business of humanitarian action. The situation in Ukraine will surely influence gender dynamics there and implications for women globally. Um, so keeping the spotlight on gender and understanding how roles and dynamics change in conflict 
and in humanitarian settings is so critical to inform our humanitarian response, but also for sustainable peace and development. The militarization of Ukraine and the world will have deep ramifications for the future of gender equality. What does the future of gender equality look like for a country where most of the male population was forced to engage in warfare, where women majority um, were forced to flee with their children or separated from their families, risking sexual violence and exploitation? What does a post-war Ukraine look like when more traditional gender roles have been reinforced with men the protectors and women the carers, where we have an increase in macho culture or toxic masculinity, where there is more arms and weapons? What does this mean for gender relations globally when as a result of the war in Ukraine, we see an increase in militarization globally and with countries increasing defense spending means less spending on gender equality, means less for social and protective services. Women's peace and security globally is at risk where traditional gender roles are entrenched. And this is a disservice to both men and women and um, diverse communities. So gender norms are changing in all settings across the globe. Um, if I can just share that in, 20, uh, in 2009, I studied Vietnamese women's economic empowerment during its accession to the World Trade Organization to discover that with more trade and economic opportunities, women's roles changed. Rural women, um, village, women in the villages, the power relations within families changed and they had access to more decision-making. So women felt more empowered as they were given more opportunities. In Afghanistan, the past 20 years has also seen many changes to women's roles and leadership. And at all, all of this is at risk um, in the current humanitarian situation. So in humanitarian settings, while success is too few and far between, as we've seen, there are good practices, um, there are successes. And I want to just now um, you know, give a plug to a recent examination of the Rohingya community in Bangladesh um, in a study by Dawn Chan um, that reinforces many of the points colleagues have already raised. And it also offers very much hope that actually gender programming works. Um, it can work and it can work at the speed of light, um, but we have to invest. We can capitalize on crisis as opportunities for social change, um, but this can only happen if we invest um, adequately. And I think that um, the evidence that, you know, women's economic participation works, um, but there's a lot more work to be done and particular work on women's leadership. Um, so on that, let me come to this. So what can we do more of as the humanitarian sector? Firstly, we have to, invest in gender expertise and gender equality programming, because even though we only have few um, success stories, studying them has shown us that it really does work and we have to invest. Invest in women's organizations, invest in economic opportunities, invest in education and vocational programs for women. We have to fund local women's organizations and networks who do this work. And I think the report clearly tells us that, that we have to work with local actors. 
male engagement initiatives to make sure that men and boys are engaged. And I think that we need to really sustain some of the really good um, uh, practices out there around male engagement um, and of course, feminist uh, informed. Religious and faith-based organizations and leaders, how are we working with those? Because we also have positive experiences where they have made um, influences to gender norms and gender practices in their communities. Humanitarian organizations um, must see gender equality as core to their mandate. I was in a meeting yesterday with the Commissioner for Gender Equality in Ukraine, and she used this analogy, which I really liked. She said, we must see gender equality as the foundation of a house and not as the roof after we've built the house. And so this res really resonates because I think, you know, for us to contribute collectively, we must be um, start, uh, we must start the conversation early, including in humanitarian settings. Um, as OCHA, um, let me reinforce um, that our practice is very much on three areas of priorities. Um, and these are very simple, but I'll, I'll illustrate why we're focusing on these three areas. Firstly, April, gender I might analysis. ask you just to quickly wrap up if that's okay. Yes. Thank you very um, much. Gender analysis um, is the first um, area that we're pushing, which really resonates with all of the points that um, colleagues have raised. Prevention of gender-based violence, uh, because we want to make sure that there is that protection lens. And then thirdly, and importantly, it's about promoting women's participation and leadership in humanitarian decision-making. And this includes uh, identifying and partnering with local experts. Um, this last point on women's leadership is critical because it doesn't just require us to reflect on gender norms, um, but it reflects, it forces us to reflect on gender norms within our own diverse humanitarian community. How are we walking the talk uh, within our own organizations? Do we have women in leadership? Do we have gender parity? Are women visibly engaged in humanitarian work? Because this, the sector is often very male dominated. So we too must confront um, and help the evolution and revolution when it comes to gender equality. Thanks, April, and, and thanks very much for pointing to some of the positive um, examples that you've you've seen, because I think it's really important that we 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 illustrate them and build on them. But I'm going to turn now to, to you, Sarah. Um, the Women's Refugee Commission has done a lot of work on feminist responses to crises and, and forced displacement, and your research has pointed uh, to the important role of place based organizations, a point that April uh, was really emphasizing as well. Could you talk a little bit more about this and also perhaps what shifts you think need to occur amongst international organizations to support their roles? Over to you, Sarah. Thank you. And just to say thank you to, uh, so much to ODI for inviting me to participate in today's event. And I'm very honored to be among such um, distinguished speakers. But I also want to thank Ireland and Canada for their leadership, not just on humanitarian action, but also on women, peace and security. Um, as for some of those that don't know our work well, the Women's Refugee Commission is a research and advocacy organization, and we are working to promote the rights and address the needs of displaced populations emphasize in all their diversity. 
And our focus on gender equality and inclusion has been very intentional from the start. And this approach allows us to identify the specific needs and vulnerabilities of groups that have been marginalized historically um, by dominant gender norms. And it's also allowed us to contribute to more resilient, locally driven, effective humanitarian responses. And we found in our work, going to a point that April has made, that to shift power in humanitarian response, the concepts of empowerment, voice, and agency are essential. Um, and as the HPG project notes, humanitarian responses are really still too often um, focused on protection and vulnerability. And from our work at the Women's Commission, we know that the full, equal, meaningful participation of displaced communities in both the design and delivery of humanitarian assistance is just as important. And without this fundamental change or shift in practice, those in power, those making decisions, will always tend to deprioritize gender, inclusion, and non-discrimination. And we've seen this in crisis after crisis. Um, we've also seen how displaced communities are the most knowledgeable on identifying their needs, the barriers they face, and how they can best overcome them. And we need to move away from assumptions that we that see people of all genders as passive and recip passive recipients of aid and recognize that it is often the inequalities and discriminations they face that make them vulnerable in the first place. So we're firm believers at the Women's Refugee Commission that if with the right support and resources, um, they can exercise their leadership and leverage their own capacities to move forward with their lives. Especially um, this requires a shift from just that needs-based model that's been so dominant to one that is inclusive, participatory, and resilience-based. And one powerful example comes from our work on disability inclusion. Women-led organizations of persons with disability are often excluded from the feminist movement and the disability movement, as well as humanitarian action but their participation is critical to counter assumptions by service providers that women with disabilities only need disability related services. And this can lead to the denial of sexual and reproductive healthcare for other and other gender sensitive um, services. Um, Marta talked about the MISP. So often what we've seen is women with disabilities are not included in MISP programs. Um, and they cannot be they can also be excluded from other programs such as livelihoods programs. We need to be asking um, people with disabilities not what they can't do, but what they can do. And we need to change that, that, that whole perception around how we include persons with disabilities. And it's key that um, for humanitarian actors um, to establish relationships with these diverse, place-based organizations early on and ensure their meaningful engagement, recognize their skills and capacities, and importantly, 
we need to free ourselves from a traditional understanding of what a humanitarian actor looks like. Over and over, we see how local groups with very few resources provide critical support in, in, to displaced persons. Um, they're often the first responders in crisis. When COVID, um, the COVID pandemic hit, and we've seen others refer to this, many international organizations were forced to halt their programs. We saw refugee-led organizations, including refugee youth organizations, step up to fill that void, including by raising funds to purchase food and hygiene items for vulnerable members of their communities. They also identified protection concerns, such as domestic violence and cuts in reproductive health care. And they brought these issues to the attention of the authorities. Moreover, they came up with cross-cutting ways to address these concerns. They think holistically. Strengthening partnerships with place-based organizations is not a panacea for all the barriers we face with operationalizing gender equality, but it is an essential step in the right direction and has the potential to catalyze change from the bottom up. But as a recent um, WRC study found, the Gender Transformative Change Study, um, we, also, we found in that study that profound technical and political change is also needed within the humanitarian organizations to achieve inclusive gender transformative outcomes. In the internal organizational change must include hiring diverse staff, especially leaders with the capacity for and a genuine commitment to gender equality work. And this change also rests on the creation of a culture of and systems for, and I emphasize this point, accountability for transformative processes and outcomes. Importantly, our study really underscored that transformative change requires donors as well as operational humanitarian actors to shift, as April has said, shift power and resources to actors in affected contexts and communities, especially women-led civil society organizations with attention not only to the amount of funding, but also the type of funding. Multi-year flexible funding is needed as well as measures to mitigate the multiple barriers place-based organizations face in accessing humanitarian funds. Donor advocacy is really required to increase funding for gender equality work, we've heard this, but also increase direct funding to NGOs in the field. Only currently, and I believe this number is um, correct, only an estimated 4% of the total humanitarian budget is current, currently allocated to gender equality work, and even less is going directly to place-based organizations. So to end, the humanitarian sector must recognize that gender equality is a critical part, as we've all said, of humanitarian response not an add-on, and it's always urgent and always life-saving. Gender equality, inequality, is, underlying, is the underlying cause of gender-based violence 
and a driver of conflict. So ensuring equality is very much in the interest of humanitarians. And I believe going forward, we need to be very intentional about our actions to move this complex uh, agenda forward. Um, it requires, I believe, new thinking, more qualitative research, new partnerships, and quite frankly, a very healthy dose of boldness. We need to be bold. And so to sum up, and a point that's been made before, if we are to make progress, the humanitarian sector must adopt what we do and how we do it. Thank you very much, Sarah. Um, and thank you for all our panelists for, yeah, very bold, I think, interventions and, and really powerful statements. And you've prompted quite bold and uh, powerful uh, questions, which is fantastic. And I'm going to highlight two. Um, and I'm going to be really mean, and I'm going to target them at um, individual panelists. So the first one um, is around uh, place-based and, and women's-led organizations. Um, and Marta and uh, Sarah, you both powerfully talked about the important leadership roles that these organizations can undertake, the transformative potential of grassroots movements and organizations. Um, and there's a question um, that I think is the counter view that has, has come in about how you balance working with and prioritizing local organizations with the fact that some of these um, uh, will um, perpetuate some of the prejudicial gender norms that may be ingrained in, in certain cultures. Uh, so how do you balance the, the potential transformative effect with also potentially uh, a, a regressive effect of, of place-based organizations? So I wanted to ask both of you those questions because you've made so powerfully the case for uh, place-based organizations. And, and also some difficult questions for you, uh, Marta and uh, and April, and you can be thinking about this one, it's going to come to you afterwards. And this is around um, gender transformative roles. Um, there's been a lot of questions about um, uh, how we can avoid being gender transformative when we're trying to challenge uh, the marginalization of specific groups, potentially those with uh, diverse sexualities or identities. The fact that we're working in protracted crises where we might want to link uh, to development approaches and, and in particularly uh, issues around uh, gender equality. So how can we possibly not be gender transformative um, as uh, humanitarian actors? So, um, yeah, I like all those questions. So uh, first of all, maybe to, to you, Marta, um, around uh, both the regressive as well as transformative uh, potential of place-based organizations. Oh God, I definitely think that all the work that we do since the starting point is right. It's impossible not to be transformative, um, you know, and, and even working in the most restrictive, complex context that a country like Colombia has, because it's not only the work conflict, but also the cultural um, diversity that we are recognized by, I think that uh, 
that no, the, the, I mean, we have to move forward and we have to recognize that those differences and that gender inequalities, how they damage the social tissue of communities and what the bad impact is, is, is what, what the, bad, the bad results are happening. So some of the things that we have done and that we have seen being successful is like strengthening woman-led organizations, as was mentioned before. We try to work a lot with them. And I think something really important is create like a spaces for the sensibilization of the issues, you know, talk about what happens and try to recognize how the cultural history waits on the, on the progress and development of a country or even a special community. Also working with young people. I think that young people, young people nowadays have social strength in order to change things and they're questioning everything, you know? So that has been one of our main support in order to recognize that in order to change the things that need change, we have a lot of supports in the country. And always something that the research have proved, data, statistics, numbers, evidence, when you show, the evidence and, and, and what happens in a country, I think that's a starting point in order to start seeing changes happening and good changes and taking control of one's lives and being able to decide about the reproductive autonomy, I think is one of the biggest uh, changes that can happen in a woman's life and in, 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 in a person's life. So those, those are some of the things that we have been you know, building as time goes by and that we have learned and that we are seeing the positive changes happening in the communities. Thank you, Marta. That's really interesting. Uh, Sarah, do you want to build on that in terms of both the regressive and, and progressive roles of place-based organizations? I think the key point that Martha made is 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 so right that we, you know, if we work with women-led um, organizations, um, women-led organizations of persons with disabilities, and they have a human rights focus, they have a women's rights focus. I think that many of those sort of negative pieces we can counter. Um, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about as Martha spoke, and I was remembering from so much of our early work in Brazil, um, I don't want to digress too much, but when we were talking about the women's um, rights movements in Brazil, we were also very aware that international money coming to these small groups could take them away from some of the services that they were providing, some of those activities that were so key to their communities. So I think that this is another dimension of of the problem that we need to look at. We can't just go in and channel money to any group. We really need to understand the local context, the dynamic among the local groups, and really do no harm. Going back to the doing no harm piece, I think is really essential. Because what we saw in Brazil at the beginning of the, so when the women's rights movement became very emboldened after the awakening, the political awakening in Brazil, we saw many of these groups moving away from what their strengths were, you know, in, and, and their knowledge base because of international funds. So I think this is an element as we push out 
the, that we need resources to go to local groups. I think we have to be very careful about how we do it and really establish meaningful um, organization uh, relationships, but also look at the skills and capacities and really support the organizations, meet them where they are. And we really need to learn to lead from behind. So I'll leave it there. Thanks, Sarah. April, I'm going to, to, to now turn to you for these really difficult questions around, you know, is it right that actually humanitarian actors shouldn't engage um, in gender transformative work or they should see their role as somewhat limited in that respect? And is that practical um, given the fact that we're in protracted crises, um, the fact that we're interested to, to challenge the marginalization of certain groups? So how would you respond to that, April? Um, certainly, I, I think that there is a big responsibility. So going back to what I had um, said earlier, that the responsibility for moving forward the gender equality agenda is collective. And that includes humanitarian actors who also have their own sets of gender norms and practices that they perpetuate as well. So gender norms already exist in the humanitarian community and power relations and gender roles are perpetuated. Um, but if I can just hone in on this piece on women's participation and leadership must be the key takeaway. So how do we as humanitarian actors work with local communities to really transform some of these um, relations? We have to, and that involves seeing gender inequality for what it is, which is broader than what happens in an emergency, which means that we have to be inviting humanitarians to not work in silos. It's not only about reacting, but it's also about being proactively connecting with development and peace actors to ensure that there is this better programming, that this gender analysis is spanning in a much more um, holistic way. And this means that we have to be connecting actors um, sorry, the connecting factor across all of these pillars um, is uh, women's civil society. So how do we work with, how do we support and how do we listen and fund women's organizations? Because they will be doing some of this transformative work, which we should be partnering with. So I think on this point around the role of humanitarian actors, yes, we don't have to be in the lead um, spearheading the revolution or the um, evolution of gender norms, but we should be at the minimum partnering with organizations and people who are already doing this work, and most of them are women's civil society. We have to also reflect on um, how to drive this positive change uh, using uh, men and boys, sorry, not using, but including the engagement of men and boys, and to really debunk, you know, the, um, the role of masculinities and toxic masculinities. How do we promote positive masculinity, right, in, um, in championing gender equality? Um, and then the last point is around how do we offset the additional burden on women as well as they navigate and as they have these new roles and expectations for them to lead and to be empowered and to have economic opportunities. We are adding more responsibilities to women in the communities we work in without additionally recognizing the time uh, poverty that they may uh, face. And so I think it's important to have some of that analysis and to look at um, some of the root causes um, of the inequalities as well. So if I can just uh, land on this piece on 
really making sure that we promote the experiences and leadership of local organizations because they are there before the crisis and they will continue to be so um, after we're long gone and which we should be aiming to be gone because the expertise rests in the communities. Thanks, April, and thanks also for picking up uh, the issue of masculinities. A, a really interesting question has come in about that as well. So I'll turn now to you, Megan, to, to also address this question about how far um, or whether humanitarian actors should engage in, in gender transformative um, uh, action, but also perhaps to touch on the, the question in, in the, the, the chat about, we're hearing a lot about women and children um, and gender diverse people, but perhaps less about the um, gender identities of cisgender men. So um, yeah, if you can maybe touch on on both of those issues, um, yeah. those small issues in your in your response. I'm going to try desperately to be concise here. Um, I think the piece on 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 local organizations has really been amply covered by everyone else. Um, the only thing I'll, I'll I'll do is once again flag that we do have work coming out on women's rights for organizations and an event tomorrow that you can join to hear more about it, including those interlocal power relations and how we want to to cultivate more of a a walking with movements and groups that are focused on inclusion, not just any local actors. Um, on the transformation piece, I mean, this is a question I anticipated really, um, but I think that it is possible to embed a gender transformative approach and alertness to gender in all of its forms and the way it emerges in the, in the conduct of humanitarian action of carrying out that analysis that April mentioned and embedding a focus across the work we do without taking on the task of transforming gender norms in a particular place as outside actors. So anything that takes gender norms as the objects of action and change, really just going back to that previous point, has to be led by affected people and by organizations rooted in those populations. As, as Sarah said, we need to learn to lead from behind as international actors. Um, we can be responsive and sensitive in all that we do, um, but it really comes down to breaking the silo that international actors shouldn't have a program of work that is gender, that is taking on gender. We should have an awareness across everything we do um, and we should be supporting the local actors. And that goes back to our points about humanitarians own norms and April's highlighted this as well. And the question of politics. There's ultimately no such thing as neutrality. And I saw the question said, aren't we taking the side of the oppressor if we're neutral? And, it, and I, if the question asker is who I think it is, I think that person also said something in another event recently about maybe neutrality is about taking the side of something rather than someone, which is a really interesting way, way of thinking about it. Um, but neutrality is itself a, a complex and, and difficult thing to come to grips with because there really is no such thing as neutrality in, in these kinds of states. Um, and that comes back to the, the piece about linking up in protracted crises with development actors and peace building actors, which yes, we do need to be working better with those actors, but the nexus is not just triple. We need human rights actors and we need women's rights actors and we need LGBTQIA plus organizations and disability focused organizations, we need civil society. Um, 
I think that masculinities piece also ties together a lot of these these threads. Um, you know, we've argued for a relational approach and saying we can't do gender work well if we're not thinking about the full ecosystem of gendered norms and roles that are present in any particular place. And that means masculinities, but it also means femininities. And our work has called for an awareness of the harms that happen that do happen to men and boys, often for their um, perceived failure to conform to particular gendered norms and roles. And if we're going to understand what norms are and what they're doing in a particular place, it has to come down to an understanding of the stakes, that when we resist and we reject gendered norms, that comes with consequences, exclusions of different kinds, violences of different kinds. So we do try to highlight what happens to men and boys, but it does come back often to a highlighting of, of the people who are most routinely um, excluded and marginalized based on their gendered identities and presentations, and that's women, girls, and, and gender diverse people. But like, like the questioner says, we don't have a complete picture if we're not talking about what happens to men too. Thank you, Megan. We have time for one last round. It's going to have to be a really, you know, flash round. So maybe I can keep your uh, answers to, to one or two minutes. But um, there is a question um, uh, that's come in around, you know, what advice you would give to someone doing research on gender norms with sexual and gender minorities? So what practical advice you would give them about kind of key issues and factors to be mindful of? Um, and another question about there, we've covered a wide range of, of topics and I love how we've been both kind of conceptual as well as quite practical, but what is the one kind of key issue that you think humanitarian agencies um, need to do in order to take a tangible step forward? So you've each got a minute or two, uh, maybe starting this time you with April, either to focus on the work of humanitarian organizations or on, on research. Um, so I'll maybe April, Sarah, um, Marta, and then Megan. Over to you first, April. So um, two points from me, and it's again, just reinforcing um, some of the earlier points. Firstly, it's around uh, how do we better promote the leadership and agency of uh, local women's organizations and that expertise. And that's certainly a space that we're working towards in terms of bringing women into the humanitarian uh, decision-making space. Secondly, is around funding because all the research tells us that gender equality and funding to women's organizations that do this work is chronically, uh, chronically low. And so how do we have better investments? Because we've, got, we've seen the evidence, we've discussed the evidence today. When you invest in gender work with gender expertise, um, it, actually, it can actually transform into something positive for the whole community. Um, so for me, it's about funding and it's about the um, investment in women's leadership. Thanks. Fantastic. Thanks, April. Over to, to you, Marta, for your, your final kind of practical uh, next step. I will add to what April mentioned that um, I think we should prioritize those organizations that are also led by displaced people women and people with diverse uh, sexual orientations, gender identities, expressions. We know that some of these organizations are really small 
and that the capacity that they have is not big. But at the same time, and for many, many people from these, uh, from, 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 from these that work on the humanitarian crisis, they're the only source of trustworthy information. So I, I think, and I feel, and that's the way we have tried to work, we need to incorporate them in our response. And also try to invite to participate other members of vulnerable communities, you know, uh, to listen to their stories, to, to hear what happens at in their lives. I think it makes a whole difference. And sometimes our responses are very much you know, in, a, in very high levels, even our languages, I think we need to be there. They have to become part of our responses, part of what we do, and their stories have to become ours. Thanks, Marta. Next to you, Sarah. Well, I agree with so much of what's being said, but, you know, we are dealing with profound um, social and political change, and it's very hard to pinpoint one or two things that would really make a difference. I push back a little bit on that, but um, I do think we have, we understand the connections between say, women's empowerment, safety and protection. And there are, as it's been mentioned on this panel, there's some very key developments that I think can make an enormous change to the way we address women's protection and empowerment in the field. And I just want to go to a very sort of an area of work that I think is incredibly promising because I, and that is around cash transfers. We know that cash transfers are changing the face of how aid is being um, delivered. And if we do the cash transfers right for women and girls in particular, this can be a really important entry point for changing gender dynamics and gender power relations. So if women are getting cash and that time can be used um, to get them on the road to recovery, to look at their skills, leverage their skills and get them back where they can into say the labor force. We've seen concretely in our work, how cash can be used to mitigate gender-based violence. And without, um, you know, if women are not safe, they can't advance in their lives. We've also seen how cash can be used in the protection of adolescent girls and in helping them get back to school. So I would just, you know, there are many things that we can do, but there's some very promising, very effective things that are happening. And if we can scale some of those up and build on them and learn more about how we can have cash plus, cash plus plus, these add-ons, so that we can really make um, a change on the, uh, on the ground. I think that is um, something I would like to highlight here. Thanks, Sarah. And to you, Megan, for the final word. Thank you. So I'm going to focus more on the research side as I'm a researcher. Um, but this question about doing research on norms and doing research amongst diverse genders and sexualities, I think is, is really important. And there's so much I could say about this, about the sensitivities and all of the whole picture, but I'm gonna focus here on the notion of where people turn to when they need help. Um, because I think doing research on diverse OGS is something that's very important to me and close to my heart. And one of the things I've really learned is that it's never enough to assume 
that different groups who are marginalized will know when a space is safe for them. And that applies to diverse OGS, but it does also apply to, to women. And it does also apply to people with disabilities. And those are the kinds of things that I think we don't always account for as humanitarian actors in our organizations. And there's a lot of common cause to be made amongst these different you know, groups, different marginalizations, different needs. Um, like we said, it's another call to work with women's organizations, to work with LGBT organizations. They're the ones who can tell us um, what's needed, where to find people, what's keeping them from coming to seek the sort of services they need. Um, so that question of where people turn, what networks do they use? Do they actually reach out for official services, for humanitarian services that are available? And the answer is often no, and we need to understand better why and what we can do about it to make services inclusive and accessible to everyone, regardless of their gender, their sexuality, their disability, and all other axes of, of, of oppression. Um, but I'm conscious of time, so I'm going to leave it there. Thank you. Thank you, Megan. Um, well, I hope everyone has found this conversation and discussion as fascinating as I have had. And I think we've we've heard some really important insights, but also some very practical suggestions about how to, to move this forward. So I want to first start by thanking our amazing uh, panelists for all of their really interesting um, insights and um, experiences, but also to, to thank the audience for some great questions. Um, and lastly, to thank the governments of, of Canada and Ireland for, for co-hosting this event. Uh, we'll make available a recording of the event um, and we'll follow up and we'll provide that to you. So do uh, share that with your networks. But thanks everyone and enjoy the rest of the CSW. Thanks everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care.